0: tell it to the judge on sunday tell it to him, leave me alone tell it to the judge on sunday you can call him at who welcome to torts illustrated episode 3 i'm your host marie wait disclaimer time i am a lawyer i am not your lawyer this show is for fun and we here on torts illustrated do not dispense legal advice if you want legal advice hire a lawyer If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to *Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law, from old England to today. We have a guest host with us today, my dear friend, Bobby Murphy. Bobby, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
1: So, I was a law school classmate of Marie's. Uh, I have been a practicing lawyer for about two years now. Um, I work, I'm a litigator, which basically means cases where people are suing each other. Uh, basically, if there's, uh, if it's going to end up in court at any point, uh, I work on it. Uh, I work it you know, primarily in, you know, protecting insurance companies from the rapacious hands of people who believe they're owed money. Got a lot of this. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> it, and so I've, i uh, you know, and I'm also an enthusiast of crazy cases.
0: And Bobby is a really useful person to have on because, as he said, he's a litigator. A little secret I haven't told you, I am not. I actually do mostly contract-based law. So I don't ever see the inside of a courtroom. Bobby actually does. So he has a little more real-life experience to draw on here. Uh, but today we're going to talk about a case uh, from the Ninth Circuit, that I had never actually heard of until Bobby mentioned it to me, but the minute I heard the name, I was pretty excited to read this case. This case is called USV approximately 64,695 pounds of shark fins. Yes, that's correct. Our defendant here is actually an inanimate pile of disembodied shark fins. And no, there is not a zombie sharknado involved. Bobby, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you learned of this case?
1: So I essentially learned about it back in the day on a probably a, just a list of crazy cases. I saw the name, could not resist googling it, and ran down the uh, the facts of it and sort of found out uh, why the United States was suing 64, 000, approximately sixty-four thousand pounds of shark fins.
0: Yeah, and tell us a little more about that, because it seems so strange to me that an inanimate object is the object of a suit. Like, it's not going to be a pile of shark fans appearing in court. That's not exactly how it works, right? Right,
1: yeah. We're much more used to things like criminal law, where it's, you know, United States versus Murphy. If, for example, I had, you know, broken a (laughs) law, I personally would get... Uh, taken to court by a federal prosecutor, and then I would be fighting for my freedom or, you know, not having to pay a fine, and it would be the United States represented by a prosecutor versus me.
0: And even in civil cases, it's usually a person versus a person, right? So it's, you know, Jones v. Jones in a divorce case, or Smith v. Jones if Smith, you know, did something awful to Jones and he's suing him.
1: Exactly. And so what's happening here, it's uh, called in-rim jurisdiction, That's a little remnant of Latin. You know, we're working on getting it out of the law, but a little of it always still bleeds through. Uh, It kind of is hanging on there. Basically what it means is that it's rather than the United States going after a person, it's the United States going after a thing. And so here, uh, to the extent that the shark fins were contraband, the United States is allowed to essentially seize them. And in these cases, it will be because... They're not taking them away from anybody in the court case. They're contraband that is not really, like, allowed to be legally possessed in the context of this case. And so, essentially, the United States is attempting to seize them, and somebody who says that the United States shouldn't have them is allowed to intervene. And uh, so that's what happened here, is the people who actually had the shark fins um, served as uh, claimants, Uh, for the shark fins to essentially try to say, no, we actually deserve our shark fins. The United States should not hold on to them.
0: So basically the issue here is that they're not sure who actually owns these shark fins. The U.S. has um, seized them, but someone else says that they're theirs, and they shouldn't be able to seize them. Yes. Okay. We will get into the facts of these and why there were all these shark fins to begin with, but a few other fun case names uh, that show up in in in-rem jurisdiction cases... USB forty barrels and twenty kegs of Coca-Cola, USV thirty-seven photographs, uh, USV fifty acres, and one of my favorites that's not actually the U.S. involved, RMS Titanic Inc. v. the wrecked and abandoned vessel RMS Titanic. Uh, so this issue, while it sounds, you know, comes out in Latin and sounds a little dry, leads to some pretty fun and interesting cases. So before we get into the actual facts of this case, let's talk a little bit about the background. Shark fins, as many of you I'm sure know, have been used by people for a wide variety of purposes, mainly shark fin soup and traditional medicines. Now, fishing for sharks isn't actually illegal, but a lot of fishermen who are out fishing for sharks typically don't catch and keep the entire shark. What they'll do is they'll catch the shark, cut off the fin, and throw the shark back in. And those sharks obviously don't fare so well, they usually suffocate or are eaten since they can't swim properly or defend themselves. This type of fishing is called finning. And in the U.S. at the time that this particular case was tried, there were two relevant laws in place that we're going to talk about. The first is the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, the Magnuson Act for short, which was intended to conserve and manage fishery resources. And this act contains a definition of what a fishing vessel is. So Bobby, will you read for me the definition of a fishing vessel?
1: A fishing vessel under the Magnuson Act is any vessel, boat, ship, or other craft, which is used for, equipped to be used for, or of a type which is normally used for, one, fishing, or two, aiding or assisting one or more vessels at sea in the performance of any activity related to fishing, including, but not limited to, preparation, supply, storage, refrigeration, transportation, or processing.
0: Okay, I know that seems really long and bulky and pointless, but do you remember what we talked about in the last episode? Words can mean lots of different things. So this act tries to define a fishing vessel very specifically, and I promise you this is going to come up again. The second law that we're going to talk about is the Shark Finning Prohibition Act which was signed into law in 2000 by Bill Clinton as an amendment to the Magnuson Act, and it was intended to protect sharks from finning in U.S. waters. Sharks aren't just main characters in scary movies, and one of the reasons that I'm afraid of deep water. They are also a vital part of marine ecosystems, and they're considered what's called an umbrella species, which means that protecting them means that you protect a lot of the things down the food chain from them. No, this is not an environmental law podcast, but you know, let me indulge my passion here a little bit. There's actually a wild aid report that you can look up called The End of the Line. It's really a heartbreaking read, and it talks about this finning process and why it's terrible for sharks. So the Shark Finning Prohibition Act prohibited fishing for sharks just for their fins and throwing them back. Now, circling back to our case, let's talk a little bit about the facts of this.
1: So going back to our case, in 2002, a U.S. Navy helicopter spotted a fishing boat sailing through international waters south of Mexico that appeared to be weighed down as if it was carrying a huge cargo, but they couldn't see any fishing gear. Here I'd recommend you visit the Wikipedia article for this case. It's pretty incredible. The ship is sort of pitched back with its tail end very close to the waterline and its nose essentially peeping out. So, you, know, you know, it's uh, the equivalent of uh, you know, a car whose rear suspension has just been destroyed and it's just you know, if pointing upwards at about a 30-degree angle. Um, so it's weighed down. They thought that was pretty suspicious, uh, and the Coast Guard agreed. So they boarded the boat, which was named the King Diamond II. Um, It was a U.S.-flagged vessel originating in Hong Kong. And on board the ship, they found a pretty gnarly sight. This 84-foot boat was just chock full of rotting shark fins. Uh, Petty Officer Tabar, one of the officers who boarded the ship, described the scene as follows. The smell of ammonia was so strong that I actually stopped breathing through my nose and started breathing through my mouth. But then I got a burning at the back of my throat.
0: Apparently, I read in some of the articles on this case, the ship's uh, refrigeration system had actually broken. So they had taken all the shark fins out onto the deck to try and air out the smell. Um, So Officer Tavar said that there was basically nowhere you could go on this ship that didn't just absolutely reek of shark fins. Since the Coast Guard suspected that the fins were evidence of illegal activity, they confiscated them. The crew of the ship completely cooperated with the Coast Guard's search because apparently they didn't really think that they had actually broken any laws. They were described as sitting back and watching TV during the process. And the reason they thought they hadn't broken any laws was because the King Diamond II wasn't actually taking part in finning. All they were doing was meeting up with other fishing vessels offshore and buying the fins from them... It's important to remember that they were buying them on the water at this point, so they weren't meeting them in the port. They had meat scheduled on the water where they would uh, purchase the shark fins.
1: The fins were brought back to San Diego and weighed, and the total added up to the largest seizure of shark fins ever. About 30,000 sharks' worth of fins were 64,000 pounds. NOAA's fisheries office investigated and charged the company, which chartered the boat, a fine of $620,000, along with confiscating the fins. The company, tai Long, sorry, tai Long Hong Marine Products Limited, we'll try that one again, Tai Long Hong Marine Products Limited, uh, which we've Gordon and shortened for TLH for obvious reasons, argued that confiscating the shark fins was a violation of due process because they didn't have fair notice that what they were doing was actually a violation of the law. The district court sided with the government. On appeal, there were two issues.
0: The first issue was whether the definition of fishing vessel under the Magnuson Act gave TLH notice that what they were doing was actually prohibited. And the second issue was whether the regulations even applied to the KD-2, since although it was a U.S. ship, it actually bought the shark fins while at sea, and it was bound for Guatemala, not the U.S. So, Bobby, before we dive into these issues, can you tell the non-lawyers that are listening what due process means?
1: Sure. So, due process is essentially your right to have your day in court. So the idea being if, you know, somebody sues me and says, I owe them $10,000, the court just doesn't say, oh, all right, sounds reasonable. You should owe them $10,000. They have to hear from both sides. And so essentially it means that there's procedural protections, you know, let's say the ability to look at each other's side's evidence, to go in there and not have the judge just hear one side. It's essentially just the ability to know that what you're doing is wrong, and then be able to have the other side prove that what you're doing was wrong.
0: Yeah. So the first issue in this case actually relates to what Bobby just said, that you have to know that what you're doing is wrong. There can't be laws that have you know, secret provisions or something where you can't tell that you're violating that law.
1: The, the example I would point to here is when I was at the pool as a kid, there would always be a rule that said no horseplay. And I had no cr- clue what that rule meant. And I'm not sure the lifeguards did either. Essentially, they would just use that to, you know, blow the whistle at you anytime you did something they didn't like. And I'm not sure that the no horseplay rule would pass (laughs) due process.
0: I imagine that the lifeguards and Bobby's parents knew from a young age that he was destined for law school. (laughs) Um, But thinking back to our definition of a fishing vessel and applying it to what we've just talked about, that definition covers a vessel that's engaged in fishing— or aiding and abetting another vessel in fishing. So the issue here is that the KD-2, or at least as they argued it, wasn't fishing because they weren't actually going into the water and picking up sharks, and they weren't aiding and abetting another vessel. And the court agreed with them. The court found that the KD-2 doesn't fall under this definition because they were just buying and transporting the fins for their own purposes, not aiding and abetting in any way. Now, the government tried to argue that they were aiding by clearing out the cargo of these other ships so that they are allowing them to stay at sea longer, but that's really a stretch. I mean, this is the equivalent of telling your mom that you helped your sister with the chores by supervising. Uh, So the court did not buy this. So essentially, this definition of a fishing vessel leaves kind of a loophole in the Magnuson Act and the Shark Finning Prohibition Act. And this was something that the legislature was actually aware of when they were passing uh, the Shark Finning Prohibition Act. There was a representative from American Samoa who brought this up, that there are ships that will do this frequently. They meet up with other ships offshore and they exchange cargo, and they fall neatly into this loophole that they are not actually doing any fishing and they're not aiding and abetting any others. So they're allowed to do exactly what this act wants to prohibit them from doing just by getting other ships to do the dirty work. And remember our second issue here is whether the regulations applied to the ship because they bought the fins while at sea and they were bound for Guatemala. Now, the Act is very specific about this, but the long and short of it is that the text of the regulations on its face, talks about ships that are finning within U.S. waters and are landing at U.S. ports. So even though the ship was a U.S. ship, it didn't meet any of these requirements. It was landing at Guatemala. And it wasn't doing any sort of finning within U.S. waters. Even the fins that they bought had been fished outside of U.S. waters. So those are the basic facts of this case. Now, let's talk about the government seizing the shark fins. This is a concept called civil forfeiture, right?
1: Yes. Essentially, it's seizing property that they suspect has been used in a crime. In this case, the actual possession of the shark fins was the crime. So, it's a little more direct. But for example, you see police departments a lot of the time using civil asset forfeiture to seize large amounts of cash uh, during traffic stops, for example. So, it's a very good reason to not be engaged, not be a part of the cash economy. Uh, If you need to transfer a substantial amount of money, it may be a good idea to use a check, use an ACH, use anything other than a big brick of bills that when you get pulled over for speeding, that, you know, some patrol officer gets, uh, sees dollar signs in his eyes and says, the only reason you would have this much cash is that you're a drug dealer.
0: So what happens if they seize it and then they find out that you're not a drug dealer? You just owe your mom a lot of money and she wanted, you know, fresh, crisp bills.
1: You would, it would behoove you to be able to prove that. Uh, That's the issue here, is that unlike in criminal law, which has a burden of proof, which is basically, we're really sure you did it. Here, for civil asset forfeiture, it's just the civil standard, which is that it's more likely than not that this cash was used in commission of a crime. So it's essentially 50.00001% that this cash wasn't legitimate. And so in the absence of a justification for why you have it, they're probably going to hang on to that money.
0: Yeah, so this seems like— a real miscarriage of the law to me. This doesn't seem like something that they should be allowed to do. Has there been any pushback on this?
1: There is a ton of pushback on this. Uh, part of it is that because oftentimes the police officers who sees it get to keep the money, not the police officers themselves, but the police departments, is that this can skew enforcement priorities to rather than going after people who are actively committing certain crimes, that essentially you'll have sort of pretextual traffic stops uh, people will root around in your bags looking for, you know, contraband, whether it's drugs or large amounts of money, and they'll then seize it and get to keep it in the absence of you being able to prove why you had that for a legitimate purpose. Uh, and here, because essentially large sacks of cash sort of have an implicit aura of illegitimacy, right? You know, I'm not sure about you, but I don't really, you know, keep, you know, short of rap videos, I don't really, you know keep a lot of racks of, you know, $10,000 hanging around, uh, that, that essentially you better have a really articulable reason for why you have this stuff. The problem is, is that turns out there's a lot of people in the cash economy who really do just use cash for everything, uh, whether it's because it's difficult to get access to banking or they just don't trust banks. Not trusting banks is not a crime. It's really, it can be really problematic to where it's people who, essentially perhaps have their life savings in their car, which, you know, we can talk about whether that's a good idea. But if you have your life savings in the car, it gets seized on suspicion of being a crime, how are you going to afford a lawyer? How are you going to engage in that process to go try to get your money back, even if you have a legitimate use for it?
0: A lot of our laws are really, when you drill down into them and you see their application, biased against people who may have less money and less, less access to resources. Uh, I think a lot of you probably read in the news maybe a year or two ago. I, I, maybe you remember this. I think it was Russell Simmons or someone who had some sort of prepaid card. Uh, it was a celebrity. But they had a prepaid card that a lot of people used. And then it went under, and all these people lost access to their accounts. Uh, and they didn't have access to their money for weeks and weeks at a time. And I remember a lot of people saying, at least in my favorite place in the world, the internet comments, Why didn't these people just have a bank account, use a debit card, this is so stupid. But the truth of it is, is that it's not that easy to get a bank account when you don't have credit, when you don't have a lot of money to your name, when you can't put in an initial deposit. And so a lot of people do end up living on cash or on, you know, prepaid debit cards, these less helpful and less useful systems. And these are the people that fall victim to things like civil forfeiture, where they're walking around with a stack of cash, not because, you know, they're going to go do a drug deal, but because they don't have a bank account, they don't have a credit card, and that is the easiest way to go about their business. Yeah.
1: I, I think there's this preconception that people who do things that seem dumb to us must be dumb, and that's not usually not the case, is I think the point of using cash isn't that it's an awesome option you know you could slip you could fall it could, could fall down a storm drain you know somebody could rob you there's all sorts of reasons not to use cash but if we assume that the people who are walking around with cash still have are somewhat rational people you have to say what is so crummy in society that they still are doing this that they're still walking around with twenty thousand dollars worth of cash and that is their life savings and they have to hold it physically
0: switching gears a little let's talk about this concept of loopholes in laws Bobby, one thing that always strikes me about these cases that involve loopholes is that I always wondered, at least before I went to law school, why doesn't the court just enforce what the act was intended to do instead of looking on the surface and saying, well, we have to allow them to sail through this loophole?
1: Yeah, I think that goes back to the due process point. Essentially, uh, when somebody's making a law, you assume that if they're being specific, they're being specific for a reason. And if they say you can, you know, you cannot, you know, buy a sandwich on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Presumably it's legal to buy it on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. The and so because people look to the law, they look to the specifics of the law to determine what it what isn't legal, that you have to be able to essentially rely on the law if there's a loophole or there's a carve out. You know, there's a reason the legislature intended to do that, and that we're going to and that courts will reflect the wishes of the legislature, when they enforce the laws.
0: So even though sometimes it looks like the courts are letting, you know, to be simplistic, the bad guy get away with the crime just because there's a loophole, essentially what they're doing is protecting our rights under the law because laws have to be written in a specific and clear way. If they're not and the courts allowed them to apply them in a way that's different than what was written, we really wouldn't have a sense of when we were breaking a law or not.
1: Right. At that point, you might as well just have the judge decide whether or not she likes you. Is that the idea is that judges are constrained by specific laws and that they have to follow the law.
0: So this loophole in this Shark Finning Prevention Act was actually closed. I think in 2011, maybe, Barack Obama signed a new act that closed up this loophole for this specific issue. And you know, we do our best to close loopholes in the law when we find them. But the problem is that you usually don't find them until they're affecting someone. So one that came up recently, we've had a lot of protests happening. And one thing that I was told before I went to one of these was take the um, fingerprint sensor off of your phone so that you can't open it with a fingerprint. Can you guess why?
1: I can guess because fingerprint, (laughs) your fingerprint is simply a piece of data. It is not speech. And so if they put your fingerprint up to the sensor That's just something the police are allowed to do, whereas they can't make you say things that would incriminate yourself.
0: Yeah, so that's pretty close. Um, The shorter version is that the police are not allowed to force you to put in your passcode to your phone, because that is a piece of information that's private. Forcing you to put it in might be a way of leading towards incriminating yourself. But because your fingerprint is not a private piece of information it's a physical thing on your body they can compel you to put your finger on your phone and open it so that they could potentially get to that information
1: essentially courts hold that it's the same thing as appearing for a lineup in a photo Mm -hmm. is that it's some physical trait of yours rather than something like saying police have the right to make you talk about what you did whereas we have the fifth amendment to protect to, to prevent that to prevent police from coercing you into saying something if you don't want to
0: Right, and this is not necessarily a malicious loophole. This is not someone leaving a door open for the police to get your information. This is because our phones weren't as advanced when these laws were put together, or in some cases, phones didn't exist. It's a newer thing to be able to unlock your phone with your fingerprint or your face. And so as technology advances, we're finding more and more loopholes based on technology that our laws are not prepared to cover the new technology that we have.
1: And it's because a lot of these things don't fit neatly in previous categories. A lot of what I do is essentially there's a sign outside a building that says no ducks. And, you know, somebody I represent had some sort of bird with kind of webbed feet that, you know, maybe made some quacking noises that walked through that door. And the question is, was that a duck? You know, was it a goose? We don't know. Let's talk about what makes something a duck versus something a goose and talk about whether or not that sign actually got violated. You know, so I think whether or not a fingerprint was speech used to be a pretty irrelevant discussion. Nobody really thought to think about it, mm-hmm. uh, whereas now all of a sudden it matters. And so courts are going to sort of, in the, through the common law process, try to figure out is it closer to lining up for a, fo- for a photo ray or is it closer to being forced to tell pl- the police what you're up to?
0: So how does this affect your day-to-day with um, computers and emails and discovery in cases? I know that's a little off topic, but I'm curious because, you know, a lot of our laws surrounding attorney work product and what's discoverable and what's not for our non-lawyers, basically, what can the opposing counsel request and look at in a court case and what is uh, confidential and they can't get to. But a lot of those laws, you know, we didn't have email, we didn't have um, voicemail, transcription, all this stuff that's going back and forth between lawyers and their clients um, that may not have existed before.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the question of, you know, what's reasonable to expect people to turn over that's on their computer, you know, what information is... First off, there's not a lot of appreciation for all the different types of information that's out there. Uh, I recently was working on a case where we essentially ripped all the data off of a cell phone, and let me tell you, I am suddenly much more circumspect about uh, what's going on my phone, just because it's essentially, you know, the way you inter- interface with a large portion of your life through that phone, and that phone is recording pretty much everything. So, uh, you know, I I think, so this is obviously an emerging area of the law in terms of both what's technically feasible in terms of what you can recover from a computer, from a cell phone, from, you know, various cloud-based services. But courts are doing overall, I think, a pretty good job of drawing those lines about, what it's reasonable to ask for, what's too expensive, you know. But essentially, a lot of what I do is haggling with the other side and trying to convince the judge about why I should be able to see some documents that are in, you know, some business, you know, middleware system where, you know, it's somebody's accounting database or somebody's, you know, system for processing bills. And, you know, us being able to say, look, this matters for our case. We should be able to look at it. Versus the other side saying it's impossible to look at, it's super expensive, we'd be wasting thousands of hours and you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of time. So there's a lot of debate about this, but it's not really, it's an emerging area of the law because the underlying reality keeps changing.
0: Yeah, it's very hard to make laws about a moving target. And, and I'm not
1: sure you would want to. Right. Essentially because the law is a slow process, and I think, at its core, it's supposed to reflect societal consensus about things, right? We say murder is bad because everybody agrees murder <laughs> is bad, right? So we say you know you'll go to jail for that. I think. But what it's,
0: then even there, we have our places where maybe it's not. Maybe it's self-defense.
1: So right.
0: every everything has its exceptions.
1: Absolutely, but I mean, <laughs> but I think the idea is that. Laws that make things illegal are basically pretty much only illegit- only legitimate to the extent that they actually enforce what society wants to be happening, right? We don't want people going to prison for stepping on a spider. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. But as, you know, how we interact with technology is changing, how people are getting, you know, engaged in new things, you know, high-frequency trading, some people think that's completely legitimate. Some people think that, you know, it's basically stealing. You know, so I think until we as a society come to a consensus on that, we probably shouldn't be making laws about it. You know, however, the other side of that coin is that essentially we, you can tell whether or not society's come to a consensus about whether or not there's a law made about it. If you can get enough pe- of those kittens in Congress herded into a single pack to pass a law, that then you can say, all right, so that actually does reflect societal consensus, you mm-hmm. know, which is what happened here, right, is essentially... Nobody likes shark finning because, uh, basically, shark fins are consumed by people on, you know, the Pacific Rim. It's not people in the U.S. who are primarily consuming shark fins, you know, and people say, wow, you know, we shouldn't be doing this to sharks. It's fine to, you know, eat and consume a whole shark, but the wasteful process of just finning them, we've decided, is not acceptable, so we made it illegal. And here, uh, where there was a loophole, where, for whatever reason, they neglected to, have an inclusive definition of what is a fishing vessel. The people's duly elected representatives said we didn't mean to do that. Courts have misinterpreted what we meant to do and we're going to make it clear that this is illegal.
0: And it's entirely possible that there is a future out there where the U.S. decides that shark finning is something we're into and this could be reversed. I mean think about prohibition. We had a chunk of time where you weren't allowed to drink in the U.S. People weren't so into that and it got overturned with yet another constitutional amendment. So The law does shift and change with the passage of time and with the change of cultural norms. You know, women are allowed to vote and wear pants now, which I'm super into because skirts are not great. And we want our laws to reflect where we are as a society.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, following on from 2011, it's clear to say that finning sharks, even if you're merely collecting those fins, is not allowed.
0: Well, I think that's it for this week. Bobby, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Not sure yet what we'll be discussing next week, but I can promise you it'll be interesting and it will probably include, yet again, the concept that words mean nothing and everything has to be interpreted. So, until next week, this has been Towards Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie.
1: I'm Bobby Murphy.
0: And we are asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare us. Or at least put us last.